2 Timothy chapter 2. As we finish up our study of living by the book, I thought it'd be prudent to end this with an actual message from God's word and not just uh, working through that other book. One of the best resources for all things doctrinal are the epistles of Paul, and in particular, his letters to Timothy. And I find 2 Timothy to be especially compelling because it represents Paul's final words. Now, we understand that it's fully inspired, the Holy Ghost inspired every word, each word, and all the words. But it also represents Paul's greatest passions and his fervent desire to pass those passions along to his protege, Timothy. Paul is about to finish his course. And it's been rightly said that no course is finished in the energy of the flesh. If you finish your course as a Christian, keep the faith, as Paul put it. You'll not do it through your abilities. You'll not do it through your flesh. It'll be because the grace of God through the Spirit of God enabled you to do it. One commentator summed up 2 Timothy chapter 2 in a certain way, and for the most part, I like it. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse number 1 is an encouragement to be strong as a son. You know, you're a child of God, be strong in view of that. Verses 2 through 4 admonishes Timothy to be separated as though a soldier. Um... Verse 5 calls on Timothy and us to strive, to contend, like a sports figure. Paul was really into sports. You see him mention wrestling and boxing and running of different kinds, sometimes a sprint, sometimes a marathon. He was really into sports. And he uses those analogies a lot. And what's interesting in chapter 2, it kind of works for whatever the sport may be. He left it vague. The Holy Spirit instructed him to. But then verses 10 through 13, I'm sorry, verses 6 and 7 calls him to be steadfast like a farmer. You say, oh, you didn't use an S word. Oh, I've got one. A sod buster. Ah. All right. Verses 10 through 13 encourages being steady amidst suffering. And beginning in verse number 20, we see Paul teaching Timothy about being a sanctified servant. I'm good with all these characterizations, but our attention tonight is focused on verses 14 through 19. And the category that was put forth here encourages Timothy to be studious as a scholar. Now, if I'm honest with you respectfully, I think that's a little bit misleading, and you'll get that a little more as we get into it. Certainly there is the idea of scholarship and being a diligent student, but the picture that's being offered is not the picture of a student. It's a picture of a workman, a laborer, the people that keep the country going. Um, It's very grassroots, very everyday man. 
It could be any kind of workman. It's, it's vague enough to where anybody could plug their vocation in here, an artist in their chosen field, whether it's textiles or stone cutting or medicine or farming or even, in Paul's case, tent making. A skill, a craft, a trade. The word study in verse number 15 actually isn't a reference to the academic. It means to be urgently diligent to a specific task at hand. So Paul is likening the study and proclamation of God's word, not to a professional teacher or educator, but to a seasoned laborer. It's as though Paul is laying out before Timothy everything that he has taught him and then saying, Timothy, my son, I have poured all that I have into you, and I'm about to leave my legacy in your hands. So, Timothy, grab your Bible, such as it is at that point, grab your Bible and go to work. And I think that's the message God's placed for us tonight as we leave Mr. Hendricks and his wonderful book and the strategies behind. What do we do? What's the grand so what of our study of this book? It's time to take our Bibles in hand and go to work. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 14. <clears throat> Of these things put them in remembrance, charging them before the Lord that they strive not about words to no profit, but to the subverting of the hearers. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness, and their word will eat as, as doth a canker. Of whom is Hymenaeus and Philetus, who concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already, and overthrow the faith of some. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure. Having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his, and let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. It's time to go to work. So, Father, would you help us now as we take on this subject and we finish up our thoughts from this book? Would you help me to teach it and preach it clearly and in the way that most pleases you? Just meet with us tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This passage is not speaking to us as sons or soldiers or sports figures or those suffering or even scholars. It's pointing out that all of us are viewed by God as laborers, workmen, and that we've got a job ahead of us. You see, we did not go through all of this and talk about, you know, observation and interpretation and application and all the things to avoid and all that. We didn't go through all of that so that we can throw our chest out and say, well, I now am a good Bible student. No. We talked about in our Bible class the other day, no, in Sunday school, I think it was, we talked about how it would be interesting if you have somebody that is, is really skilled with firearms and they can take a firearm apart, they can put it back together, they can repair, they're excellent gunsmiths, they know how to clean it perfectly, do all that. But if you 
hand it to them, you load it and say, hit that target, and they can't come anywhere near it. How much good is that gun to them? But there's a lot of Christians like that. They can spend enormous amounts of time taking things apart and putting things over here and putting things over here, but when you hand them a fully loaded gospel gun, they don't know how to fire it. And if they do, they can't hit anything. So this whole thing wasn't about us saying, you know, hey, we've learned some new techniques and we've learned how to do this and how to, no, this is all about getting to this point where we take our Bible and go to work. That's what this is about. It's time to go to work. So Paul gives us four things to think about tonight in this matter of getting to work. Four things. Number one, remain gospel-centered. Timothy, and by extension us, remain gospel-centered. Look at verse 14. Of these things, put them in remembrance, charging them before the Lord, that they strive not about words to no profit, but to the subverting of the hearers. What has happened here is Timothy is the pastor of the church at Ephesus, and false teachers have already started infiltrating the church at Ephesus. And Paul's trying to help Timothy to know what to do about this. And one tactic that a false teacher will use is they will, they will employ deep and flowery language to impress others because they sound like this, this brilliant student of the Bible. Listen, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons and people of their ilk, that's how they build their groups. They impress you with all this language and terminology and these wonderful interpretations, none of which are accurate. But they're really, really good at using language that impresses. And you say, well, they know their Bible. And so that's what these false teachers were doing. And this stuff had bled into the discourse of the church. Notice what it says. Strive not about words to no profit. You could really literally say this is a war of words. These are people that are using words. Words as a weapon to take down other people. Paul says, don't have anything to do with that. In fact, implied in this is Timothy, don't let him get it started. Can I say this lovingly? And listen, I want everybody that God wants here. But if somebody rolls up in here as a visitor, and they've been here a few times, and all of a sudden, they start talking with people about, hey, have you ever considered this view? And it's something that's heretical. Or even not heretical, but useless. You know what I'm going to do? There's the door. You say, do you have the right to do that? I'm a sheepdog. And if a wolf gets among the sheep, it's my job to run that wolf out of here. There's a fellow out west, claims to be the only true independent Baptist, and that we've all got it all wrong. And what he does is he trains people and then sends them out to infiltrate other churches. There's only one thing you can do with somebody like that. Hi, we're visiting your church. Where are you from? We're from Tempe, Arizona. What church? And they call the name. You're not welcome here. What? Nope. Your pastor's a heretic, and you're not going to come amongst this flock. I'm officially trespassing you. You show up again, I'll call the law. There's the door. Well, that's not very loving and Christ-like. 
Well, I ain't called anybody a viper or a whited sepulcher yet. But Jesus did. Far more than winning over some new visitor, I'm concerned about protecting the people already, already here. That's my job. I'm not saying I'll enjoy it. Although sheepdogs do like barking every once in a while. And Paul's telling Timothy, don't, don't countenance that stuff. Don't allow it. Get rid of it. The believers were getting caught up on vain semantics, leaving a wide open door for false teachers to insert more insidious errors. And we'll talk about a specific area that these guys were in, inserting a little bit later. So Paul says, you've got to take care of this. How do you do it? It's a simple two-step process. Number one, remind them of the message. Remind your people at Ephesus, Timothy, of the message. What's the message? Of these things, put them in remembrance. What are these things? What do we do for context? We go back, don't we? Well, let's look. Of these things, look at verse 10. Therefore, I endure all things for the elect's sake, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. It is a faithful saying, for if we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. If, if we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he, shall, he also will deny us. If we believe not, yet he abideth faithful, he cannot deny himself. What are we, is he talking about? Paul is contextually talking about the gospel. And he's saying, Timothy, when you have these problems, remind your people that the only message that they need to be focused on is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remind them of the message, but also remind them that they're being monitored. You know how kids, if they think they're not being monitored, if they think they're not being watched, they tend to act differently than if they know they are. We don't outgrow that. Because if we think we're not being monitored, we tend to act differently than when we know we are too. I dare say... You probably say things, do things, and act in certain ways. If the preacher isn't at your kitchen table, then you would if he was. Can I tell you a secret? Me too. I act a little bit differently at home than I would if you were there. Oh, that's a hypocrite. No, I'm being honest. If I know you're coming, I'm probably not going to be dressed the way I normally dress sitting around the house. Nor do you want me to be. We're being monitored. Look at what he says. Of these things, put them in remembrance, charging them before the Lord. Remind them who's watching. Remind them who's monitoring. Because sometimes false teachers get a foothold because well-meaning people want to make sure these people feel welcome and they feel happy to be there. And Paul's saying, you're not worried about how they feel. You worry about how God feels. To fail to stay gospel-centered has disastrous consequences. It's interesting. He says, if these things put them in remembrance, charging them before the Lord, that they strive not about words to no profit, but to the subverting 
of the hearers, subverting. The Greek word for subverting is really, really interesting. The Greek word is catastrophe. What English word do we get from that? Catastrophe. It means ruin or destruction. And when these folks get a foothold in a, in a local church assembly, all it does is bring ruin. Now, this deviation from the gospel was catastrophic to the saved and especially to those not yet saved. Now, does this mean we shouldn't study the deeper things? Of course not. The Bible as a whole tells us to, to dig deep and to mine the riches of God's word, but we dare not do so without remaining gospel-centered. Because when you start studying the Bible outside of the view of the gospel, all kinds of bad things happen. And most of them are bent into pride. Paul says, Timothy, it's time to go to work. And the first thing you need to do is remain gospel-centered. Number two. Hey, Timothy, cut it straight. Cut it straight. Boy, I really thought I could make it. I'm probably going to be up and down in this chair a lot tonight. Verse 15. Study to show thyself approved unto God. A workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. By the way, a little trivia for you. If you're familiar with Awana, that's what this verse comes, that comes from this verse. Awana, approved workmen are not ashamed. It's an acronym. Now, true to what we learned in the book, let's define some terms. First of all, study. Study does not necessarily mean the academic, even now, but it certainly didn't in 1611. It means to be zealous to accomplish a specific task using maximum effort. It, it, regardless of what the category is, if somebody picks up on something quickly, what do we call them a quick what? A quick study? You ever heard that phrase? A quick study? Doesn't have to be academic. A quick study. My son has an unusual ability. He can hear a song once or twice and pretty much get the words. Me, it takes me a lot more than that. Now, every once in a while, he doesn't get a word right, and he makes up his own, which is interesting in and of itself. And if he gets really bogged down, he just throws in a Christmas song and just fills it in. Um, he's a quick study. But this word also implies great effort. If you've not learned this already, you will if you study the Word of God as it's intended to be studied. It is laborious. It is. It is the hard work and labor of observation, interpretation, and application. It's work. He says, study to show thyself approved unto God. If you put this phrase together, which is only a couple of Greek words, it means to willfully... Present yourself to God's inspection in hopes of being pronounced pure after intense scrutiny. Put yourself out there and let God say, this is what I like, this is what I don't like. He says a workman, that's any skilled laborer, 
a workman that needeth not to be ashamed. That's pretty self-explanatory, not a whole lot hidden in that. But then it says rightly dividing the word of truth. The word rightly dividing literally means cut it straight. Now, this could be applied in any number of ways. The Greek word is orthotomeo. It's the same word that we get words like orthodontics from. What does orthodontics do? They straighten your teeth, don't they? At its base level, an orthopedist is trying to straighten bones. And that's where we get that from. And think about it. If you're a farmer, generally speaking, this is, not, I guess, 100% true, but generally speaking, you want to plow straight, don't you? Usually, unless there's some compelling reason not to. If you're a surgeon, you would want your surgeon to cut straight, would you not? You don't want to wake up and your incision's like this. You're like Superman with S on your chest. You don't want that. How about a seamstress or a tailor? When a straight cut is called for, you want to cut it straight, don't you? What was Paul's occupation? Tent maker. And he dealt with everything from leather to thick wool. And I would dare say that there were times and it was a straight cut was necessary. And the whole point of our study through living by the book has been to learn to cut the text straight and not deviate like so many other have. You remember we talked about hazards to avoid in chapter 28? Watch out for misreading the text, distorting the text, contradicting the text, subjectivism making it subject to your opinions and your desires. Relativism, well, it's relative to culture, to what we think or whatever. Or overconfidence, I think I know everything there is to know about this. Those are all ways to cut the text crooked. But what we need, not just in the pulpit, what we need in the pews, on the street corners, at jobs, at recreation, we need Christians that have learned how to cut the text straight and present it just as it is. We get into trouble when we try to adapt the, the, the text situationally. I'm not going to pile on this guy. I'll explain why in a minute. How many of you have ever heard the name Alistair Begg? I like Alistair Begg. I've, I've always been a fan. I don't, do, I don't agree with him on everything. He, he's Reformed theology, and I, I, don't, I don't hold to that. Um, but I do believe he loves the Lord, and he's got the gospel right, and he's trying to help people. He's a, he's a pastor. He, he's got a very nice Scottish brogue about him, and I, I enjoy listening to that, if nothing else. And he's gotten into a bit of hot water, and justifiably so. Um, someone apparently reached out to him asking for his counsel, and it made its way to his pulpit. They have a, uh, a grandchild who is about to, quote-unquote, be married to uh, someone who's transgender. And uh, this grandparent, this grandmother, 
has begged and pleaded and tried to infuse the truth into this grandchild's life. This is such a mistake, and God's not pleased with this. And now that, you know, those pleas have been unheeded, this, uh, this grandmother saying, what do I do now? I'm scared to death that, that I'm going to lose my grandchild and lose any influence over her from here on out. What do I do? And, and, and Brother Begg said, well, you've made your position clear. And in the interest of compassion and having an open door to continue reaching her, I would suggest you go to the ceremony. With all due respect to Brother Begg, and I do believe he's a brother in Christ, I think he's dead wrong. Now, he likened it to a birthday party or tried to make the application of, well, Jesus ate with sinners. There is a big difference between sitting at a table with a sinner and trying to reach them and going to a wedding which not only celebrates this, but offers at best a tacit approval and blessing on what's happening there. Big difference. And it's my understanding of Scripture. You do everything you can to convey love to that young person, but you do not go to the wedding. Which, by the way, is not a wedding. God's nowhere near it. It may be some kind of civil ceremony, but there's no marriage going on there. Well, it's easy for you to say it's not you. Perhaps. I didn't say it was easy, but it's simple. God forbid, if it were my child or my grandchild, God forbid a thousand times. I have to believe what the Word teaches. I have to cut the text straight. What has is, what is Brother Begg done? He has tried to cut a little crooked to make room for what he says is compassion. It's not. I think we have made a lot of grave mistakes in the interest of compassion. Somebody comes to me who's a young man and says, I believe I'm a woman. The compassionate thing is for me to say, you need help. Because God didn't make you that way. The compassionate thing is not to get involved with the lie and go along with it. Any more than if a doctor sees that somebody has cancer, well, I don't want to give them that bad news. You're doing just fine. That's not compassion. It's malpractice. Now, I think Brother Begg is wrong. Do I think he's a vile reprobate who never was saved? No, I don't. I think he's wrong. And I think if he loves the Lord the way I think he does, I think he'll come to understand that at some point. And I pray to that end. That said, I'm probably not going to buy his books for a while. I'm going to see how this shakes out. So what is Paul saying? Remain gospel-centered. Cut it straight. Hey, I think the world's in the shape it is, particularly America, because a whole lot of Christians stop cutting it straight. Now, I'm not saying you've got to be mean about it. I'm not saying you've got to be obnoxious about it. But when Larry King asks you, the pastor of the largest church in Houston, Texas, asks you if Jesus Christ is the only way to go to heaven, your answer is yes. Not, well, that's not for me to judge. That's not cutting the text straight. In fact, that's not even using the text. Remain gospel-centered, cut it straight, stay on point. 
Verse 16. But shun profane and vain babblings. <laughs> babblings. For they will increase unto more ungodliness. And their word will eat as doth a canker. Of whom is Hymenaeus and Philetus. Who concerning the truth have erred. Saying that the resurrection has passed already. And overthrown the faith of some. You remember we talked about how there's specific words that signal a transition? What's the first word of verse number 16? But. What does that mean? Timothy, what I've just told you, we're now pivoting, and I'm going to tell you something that's the exact opposite. So look at verse 15. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, but... Shun profane and vain babblings. As much as you should rightly divide the word of truth, you should not participate in vain babblings and profane babblings. It's the exact opposite of what we're talking about here. There's two facets going on here. Number one, there's an error. There's an error. Babblings that are unholy, that's what profane means. Or empty, that's what vain means. This is when you spend inordinate amounts of time discussing things that are either incorrect or inconsequential. Now, does that mean it's wrong for us to have conversations about things that aren't, you know, fundamental in nature? No, that's okay, as long as we understand their place. Several of us have had a, a, a peaceful back and forth about the writer of Hebrews. That's fine. There's no wrong in that. But if I take the position that Paul wrote Hebrews, and I do. And so I decide, you know what? I'm starting a church, and it's Paul wrote Hebrews Baptist Church. What have I done? I have elevated an issue that really isn't that big a deal. Doesn't even have to be scriptural, does it? I don't go to that church. Why don't you go to that church? They hold microphones when they sing specials. That is at best inconsequential, y'all. I don't go to that church. Why? Preacher wears other than a white shirt. And? We can get inconsequential real quick, can't we? But sometimes we can cross the line from inconsequential to incorrect. And that's where it really gets in trouble. So what's the outcome? If we deal with this, if we let this error stay long enough, what's the outcome? Number one, the error will worsen things. Look at verse 16. But shun profane and vain babblings, for they will what? increase unto more ungodliness. You leave, it, you leave it be, it's going to get worse. So let's hear that, you know, I hear that uh, Brother Randall in his Sunday school class, I choose him on purpose because this is never something he would teach. But let's say that, that, that Brother Randall in his Sunday school class has started to work in, um, you know, Maybe not even a false doctrine, but a faulty doctrine. 
Let's say he's starting to work in Calvinism. I've got one of two choices. Let it ride and hope nobody's paying attention. Or he, he and I need to have a conversation. If I don't have that conversation, what's going to happen? It's going to get worse. For the record, I don't believe Brother Randall has crossed over into Reformed theology. Not last I checked. Uh, <laughs> if you have, we'll talk later. But uh, anyway, it'll worsen. But you know what else it'll do? It'll spread. Interesting word here. Verse 17. And their word will eat as doth a canker. Do you know what the Greek word for canker is? Gagreen. What's the English word we get from that? Gangrene. And if you or somebody you know has ever dealt with gangrene, you know what happens. It rots and it spreads. What's the only thing you can do with it? Cut it out. Let me give you a side note here. In verses 17 and 18, we're told of two fellows named Hymenaeus and Philetus. Hymenaeus, we think, is mentioned once other in Scripture. Philetus, we don't know a whole lot about except for right here. They spread a twofold heresy. First of all, they said that the resurrection had already happened. So you all missed it. Boy, that's an exciting development, isn't it? And then they go on to say that Jesus' resurrection, he didn't resurrect physically, he resurrected spiritually. And so basically what that all leads to is everything that you've been told about a physical resurrection of Jesus and ultimately us and us reigning together in this literal kingdom, that's all wrong. Some people think that they had gotten into an early form of what's called Gnosticism which they believe that the flesh was inherently evil, so there's no way anything involving flesh could ever be used of God, so let's just have none of it. Everything's spiritual. Thing is, it was a lie. It undermined the clear teaching and promises of Scripture thus far delivered. Their success in making a mess of things in the Ephesian church is directly correlated to a lapse in rightly dividing the word of truth. These kind of things happen in churches just like this one because not only the pastor, but the people stop being concerned about rightly dividing God's word. That's how it happens. And this can happen in your church. This can happen in your home. This can happen in your heart. If you aren't willing to take your Bible on a daily basis and go to work. Because there are people out there that are real good at making it sound like the Bible says something it doesn't. I heard one just the other day. You realize that nowhere does the Bible say that God judged Sodom and Gomorrah for homosexuality. They actually were judged because of their lack of hospitality. And they misuse a verse in Ezekiel, and I emphasize misuse. And so people are thinking, well, maybe, 
Maybe God's okay with it then. Nobody brings up Romans 1. No way of monkeying around that. Take your Bible on a daily basis and go to work. Here's the last one. Oh, God's people said. Amen. Remain gospel-centered. Cut it straight. Stay on point. And see the gravity of it all. Now, what do I mean by that? We've got to see how heavy this thing is, how important this is. Verse number 19. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure. Having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his. And let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Both of those phrases come from a very familiar Old Testament passage of Scripture. They come from Numbers 16. Now, if you're familiar with Numbers 16, you know that it's in Numbers 16 that records when Korah and Dathan and Abiram and all that crowd came up against Moses and Aaron and sought to wrestle the priesthood from them. What happened to Korah and Dathan and Abiram and their crowd? The earth opened up and they, forgive me for how this is going to sound, they went straight to hell. Does that sound pretty heavy? Does that sound like God takes this seriously? And Paul, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in talking about misusing the word of God, points right to number 16 and says, this is how God feels about this. The Lord knoweth them that are his. Number 16, 5. And Moses spake unto Korah and all his company, saying, even tomorrow the Lord will show who are his and who is holy. And will cause him to come near unto him. Even him who he hath chosen will he cause to come near unto him. Then when it says, let everyone depart from iniquity. Everyone that nameth the name of Christ, depart from iniquity. He's hearkening back to number 1626. And he spake into the congregation saying, depart, I pray you, from the tents of these wicked men. And touch nothing of theirs, lest you be consumed in all their sins. So what is Paul saying? Just as sure as God is going to deal, just as sure as God dealt with Korah and Dathan and Abiram and set all of that straight, these false teachers, these people that are misusing the word of God, God is just as angry about this as he was about that. This is a profound picture of how seriously God takes the handling of his word. So why in the world Do we insist on kids that go to Granite have a Bible class in which they have to sit through Bible doctrines? Because this is that important. Why do we have Sunday school where we just dig and dig and dig into the scriptures? Because it's that important. We are seeing what happens when you have a nation that is predominantly made up of people that claim Christianity that wouldn't know a Bible verse if it smacked them in the face. Because they stopped being concerned about what the Bible teaches. And the only thing that we can do, y'all, the 
only thing that we can do is remain gospel-centered, cut it straight, stay on point, see the gravity of it all, take what we've learned from that book, grab our Bible, and go to work. That's the only thing that's going to do it. That's why we did this. That's why we're going to continue doing it. And may God help us to do it.